to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway of the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 18, 2008. I'm Adrian Burke. Dr. Michiu Kaku is a theoretical physicist, best-selling author, and popularizer of science. He's the co-founder of String Field Theory, a branch of string theory, and continues Einstein's search to unite the four fundamental forces of nature into one unified theory. Dr. Kaku received his B.S. from Harvard University in 1968, went on to the Berkeley Radiation Laboratory at the University of California, Berkeley, and received a Ph.D. in 1972. Today, he holds the Henry Simot Chair and Professorship in Theoretical Physics at the City College of New York, where he's taught for over 25 years. He has also been a visiting professor at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, as well as New York University. He lectured recently as part of the Science and the City author series at the New York Academy of Sciences on his new book, The Physics of the Impossible. Today, I'm going to talk about the future. What kinds of things, devices from science fiction, will we have in the coming decades? Now, it's always very dangerous to make predictions. I quote from Niels Bohr, the founder of the quantum theory. Niels Bohr once said, quote, Prediction is awfully hard to do, especially if it's about the future. Well, we physicists helped to create the transistor the modern computer, the laser, the World Wide Web, television, radio, and the Internet. And when we scientists created the Internet, one of us made a prediction that in the future, the Internet would be a forum of high culture, high art, and high society. Well, today we know that 5% of the Internet is pornography. But that's because teenage boys log on to the Internet. Just wait till the grandpas and grandpas log on to the Internet. Then 50% of the Internet could be pornography. <laughs> so let me now give you a guided tour of what the future may look like. First of all, if you look at what is impossible, you realize that many of the great scientists and luminaries of the past said that certain things were impossible. Here is Lord Kelvin, the greatest physicist in England in the Victorian era. He's buried right next to Isaac Newton. You can visit him at Westminster Cathedral. And he made several predictions, Westminster Abbey, and he predicted that airplanes were impossible. He predicted that x-rays were a hoax. He said radio has no purpose and the Earth could only be a few million years old. Every single impossibility of the great Victorian physicist, Lord Kelvin, was wrong. Then we have the New York Times. The New York Times railed against the work of Robert Goddard. And the New York Times said that Goddard's work is a waste of money because rockets cannot move in outer space because there's no air to push against. Well, who was right? The New York Times, which fumed against Robert Goddard, or Goddard, the man who created modern rocketry? And then Rutherford, the man who discovered the nucleus of the atom. 
he was asked whether or not an atomic bomb could be made. And he said, quote, moonshine, the atomic bomb. And even Einstein made a mistake. He wrote a paper in 1935, not 1939, that showed that black holes are impossible. They cannot be formed by natural means, by the condensation of swirling stars. Oppenheimer showed him wrong by showing that black holes can be created by collapsing stars. Einstein didn't think about that. Collapsing stars. That's what Oppenheimer came up with to form black holes. And then three years later, Oppenheimer used the idea of collapsing stars to create the Nagasaki bomb. The Nagasaki bomb is based on collapsing plutonium rather than collapsing black holes. So let's now rank these impossibilities. Arthur C. Clarke once said, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So let's talk about this. I say that class one impossibilities are possible in a few decades to a century. They include ray guns, force fields, invisibility, certain forms of teleportation, starships, antimatter engines, telepathy, artificial intelligence. Class II impossibilities may take centuries to a millennium. And Class three impossibilities are downright impossible. They violate all known laws of physics. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, invisibility. I teach optics sometimes at the university, and I teach my students from the textbook that invisibility violates Snell's law. It is impossible to make an object invisible. Well, I was wrong. And so is every single optics textbook on the planet Earth. Every single optics book is wrong. Because two years ago, at Duke University and Imperial College, in London, they did the impossible. And of course, Harry Potter, watch out. He has the invisibility cloak. Will we have an invisibility cloak? Well, two years ago, 2006, the impossible happened. An object was made invisible to microwave radiation at Duke University. And this is what metamaterials can do. In all our textbooks, we made a mistake. We always assumed that glass, air, water were uniform. But if you make a non-uniform object with impurities, you can bend electromagnetic radiation so that it goes around an object, making it invisible to microwaves. And a few months ago, we did it for red light and blue-green laser light. Tiny little microcircuits made them bend in a way consistent with invisibility. Now, I just hosted a BBC series, which will eventually air in the United States, which talks about some of these things. So let's have the first video. And the first video, we will go to Duke University and we'll see how you make an object disappear before your eyes. So can we have the first video? Until recently, there was a property of matter so fantastic it was thought to exist only in myths and legends. It was thought to be incompatible with the laws of physics. But last year, scientists made it happen. They created a material which shouldn't exist in nature. When light hits an object, 
is the object's atomic structure that determines what we see, whether it's translucent marble, clear water, or green leaves. It all depends on how the light interacts with the atoms. If we can manipulate those atoms, then we can ultimately control what the world looks like. This is exactly what David Smith and his team in North Carolina are beginning to do by creating artificial materials called metamaterials. We started thinking about interesting things we could do with artificial materials. Uh, and one of the things that came up was we could make something like an invisibility cloak. What we've done is to take materials that are commonly found, something like copper and plastic, uh, which is what our circuit board materials are made out of, and we place patterns in the copper so that they're tiny circuits. And these circuits uh, act as artificial atoms in a regular material, except now we've made an artificial material. And this altered material has a unique property. It can bend electromagnetic radiation around itself making it invisible to microwaves. The lime green waves are microwaves. When an ordinary copper ring is placed in their path, the waves are disturbed. But when the metal material is placed there, the waves bend around it and seamlessly merge on the other side, as if there was nothing there. An invisibility cloak is something that's entirely new. It's a structure that doesn't exist in nature, something that couldn't be fashioned out of existing materials, and something that really uh, functions in an almost science fiction way that uh, you might imagine wouldn't have been possible just a few years ago. We've demonstrated the principle of invisibility at microwave frequencies. And microwave frequencies are a few centimeters in size, or at least maybe the size of your thumb. So now we're looking into the future and whether or not we can do this invisible light. In addition to microwaves, scientists have already succeeded in bending red and blue light. Full invisibility may be just decades away. The first applications are likely to be for military stealth. But it's hard to imagine we'll stop there. Oh, my Lord! The ancients have always been fascinated by the property of invisibility. Over 2,000 years ago, Plato refers to this story. Once there was a poor shepherd who finds a cave, and inside the cave there's a ring, a ring of invisibility. And he uses that ring to sneak into the king's castle, seduce the queen, plot against the king. He killed the king and became the next monarch. Well, Plato used that story to show that invisibility is so powerful, it could cause societies to disintegrate. Okay, that's the question of invisibility. Within a decade or so, I wouldn't be surprised if we make an object invisible to red laser light or maybe blue-green laser light. In a few decades, the primary colors. And after that, perhaps full invisibility. 
The next question, when people talk about impossible technologies, is something dear to every Star Trek fan, and that is teleportation. We physicists used to criticize Gene Roddenberry so much that on Star Trek, they have to put in Heisenberg compensators to compensate for the quantum theory because of our savage criticism of Star Trek. Well, we physicists may have to eat crow because teleportation, at least at the atomic level, exists. Quantum teleportation is one of the fastest moving areas in physics today. We can teleport the information of bits of light called photons and also cesium atoms, beryllium atoms, and the world's record. The world's record is teleporting photons 600 meters underneath the Danube River in Vienna. And the man who did it will be in video two. So can we have the next video where you will see the actual apparatus used to beam particles of light and atoms right across the room, 600 miles across the Danube River. So can we have the next video? Here in Vienna, one of the most fantastic concepts of science fiction has already been turned into reality. And in fact, it may represent our ultimate mastery over matter itself. It's called teleportation. In my group, we have achieved teleportation 10 years ago. And we are doing it on a regular basis, all the time, improving, adding new things and so on. So it's a simple fact. Teleportation exists. This is the world's first teleportation machine. With it, Professor Anton Seidler and his team are teleporting individual particles of light called photons from one prism to another. Different methods, not the same method as the original. 
What's interesting is that the original photon's information is lost, which could have huge implications for teleporting anything on a larger scale. Is it out of the question? Or is it just very, very difficult to teleport a dog, a cat, or a human? Well, we can dream. And, and uh, if we dream about uh, teleportation of humans, then all kinds of questions arise, like, what does it mean to be me? And someone teleports me, and I know that what is being teleported is information, and not matter, not the stuff I'm made of. Uh, who is it going to up over there? How does the average person react to the fact that you have to be destroyed in order to be, have your state teleported? Suppose we put an ad in the newspaper, just for fun. Just for fun, we put an ad in the newspaper which says that we want to try the deportation of people and we look for volunteers. But we, are, we cannot guarantee that it will be successful 100%, maybe only 10 or 20%. I bet many people will show up and want to be the first one to tell In the next few years, scientists will teleport the first simple molecule, then complex molecules, perhaps the first virus within a decade or so. Teleporting a human may seem impossibly advanced, but science is changing our world faster than it has ever done in human. Just remember that Star Trek takes place in the 23rd century, which is plenty of time for us to master how to send Captain Kirk through one of these machines. Now let's talk about Death Stars. You may say to yourself, well, I like that movie Star Wars, but hey, you know, blowing up a planet? I mean, that's impossible. The critics love the movie, but they panned the Death Star, saying that it's impossible. Well, actually, it is possible. First of all, there's no upper limit to the energy of a hydrogen bomb or a laser. Now, how do I know this? Because when I was in high school, my mentor was Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb. He, in fact, helped me to get a career going in theoretical physics. And he even offered to uh, hire me to design hydrogen warheads. Uh, I declined because I wanted to work on something even bigger than a hydrogen bomb. I wanted to work on the Big Bang, the creation of the universe itself. Well, now in outer space, we do have a planet buster. And these are gamma-ray bursters, second only to the Big Bang. And if you've been reading the wire services, you know that there is a star about to blow up pointed directly at us. We are staring down the gun barrel of WR-104. It is an unstable double star system, two stars circling around each other. If it undergoes a gamma-ray burster, it will incinerate the planet Earth. And this is what it looks like. When our telescopes zoom in 8,000 light years from Earth, we see an object whose plane is perpendicular to us. So when that star blows up, its North Pole and South Pole are headed for you and me. Now, maybe it's already exploded. It's 8,000 light years away. Maybe it exploded 8,000 years ago, and we're just too dumb to know that we're about to be incinerated. 
Or maybe it'll be a dud. We don't know. But look, here is a Death Star, a star, a double star system, two stars, not one, two stars, that are unstable, with the bigger one pointed directly at us. So you cannot rule out gigantic Death Stars like in the movie. Now let's talk about telepathy and mind reading. I've always been fascinated by telepathy. And there's that famous trick that you've seen on TV. You get a bunch of people in a room and you ask them something like, you know, write down the name of a famous president or something. You collect all the responses and you put it in a hat. And then the guy reaches over, takes out a sealed envelope and says what's inside that envelope. It's an amazing trick. You've all seen it on TV, right? Or in, in Las Vegas or any of these magic shows. Everyone writes down the name of a president or whatever, puts it in an envelope inside a hat. The magician reaches in, doesn't open it, and tells you what's inside that sealed envelope, one after the next after the next. Amazing feat of telepathy. Does anyone know how you do it? It's a very simple trick. Some magicians have their whole career based on this trick. Does anyone know how you do that? How do you pick out envelope after envelope, envelope after envelope, and correctly know what's on each one? Well, let me tell you the trick. He first picks out the first envelope, and then he says, uh, the ectoplasmic cosmosphere is clouded right now. I have to go to the next one. So he reads the name of the president on the first sheet of paper and then puts it down. He picks up the second envelope and he says, I pick up vibrations. And he reads the name of the first president when he picks up the second envelope. And then he reaches again, picks out the third envelope and reads the name of the second president. And that's how you do telepathy. Now let's talk about real telepathy. First, there are two ways to read the mind. The first is something called brain gate. This person is paralyzed. He cannot talk to his parents. He cannot interact with his friends. He had a stroke. You put a chip on the upper right, a tiny little chip, right on the surface of his brain. You connect it to a laptop. And he can move the cursor of the laptop by pure thought. This works. It's been demonstrated at Brown University. It's called BrainGate. And people who are totally paralyzed can now play video games. People who are totally paralyzed can now email their parents and re read their email. Think of what Stephen Hawking could do with something like this. My colleague, Stephen, can only move his eyeballs. That's all he can do now, move his eyeballs and communicate with the rest of the world. Put one of these things on. And he'll be answering your emails. And in the future, you can imagine that these chips will be very tiny and not even noticeable. And you can have the power of the Internet just by thinking about it. This already exists. The second way to read a mind is with MRI. When we did MRI scans, we noticed something. That when you tell a lie your brain activity is larger than when you tell the truth. That's because either you are anxious 
and nervous, or telling a lie requires more energy than telling the truth. Liars are very smart people because they want to deceive you. Therefore, they have to know the truth in order to deceive you. We can pick that up now. 95% accuracy. It's not 100%. And this year, this year, the first lawsuit goes to court on this technology. One man was denied insurance. The, his, I think his house burned down. It was a fire. The insurance company said, you started it. We're not going to pay insurance. You started that fire. And the guy said, I didn't start that fire, and I will have my brain scanned in court to prove it. This year, the courts will decide whether or not this is admissible. In the future, we'll have a dictionary of thought. Certain brain patterns correspond to the word apple. Certain brain scans correspond to the word pear. And how will you communicate with it? Via your contact lenses. This is a contact lens that will eventually have the power of the Internet and the power of a PC. So you can imagine, in the future, chips connected to the brain of paralyzed individuals, having Internet on your, on the, on your, on your cornea of your eyeball, full Internet capability, and MRI scans that will give you a dictionary of thought. This pattern, this brain pattern, corresponds to Apple. This brain pattern corresponds to Pear. Now I'll say a few things about starships. We all love to read about starships, but NASA is actually looking into the possibility. In fact, I'm a consultant, and NASA asked me to review some of the proposals to build starships. Some of them were pretty far out, I must admit. Solar sails. This one actually may work. You put a sail in outer space, have lasers on the moon. Lasers will then inflate this sail, and ultimately you can go up to half the speed of light. If you do the math and you have a huge laser battery on the moon, you could reach about half the speed of light with this thing. Then you have, of course, 2001, which explores yet another way to explore outer space. We think that you need a starship, a big, lumbering starship. But what about a nanoship? What about sending robots, tiny little robots that land on the moons of different star systems, and they replicate themselves? They make carbon copies of themselves, millions and millions of carbon copies. Then they shoot out to other moons. Eventually, you will have a sphere expanding at the speed of light, containing trillions, trillions of these nanoships expanding in a sphere, colonizing the entire galaxy. Where have you seen that before? That is the basis of the movie 2001. Why don't you know that? Because Kubrick, at the beginning of his movie, interviewed physicists and astronomers. And we told the public that the most efficient way to colonize the galaxy is to put probes on the moon. Moons are stable, no friction, no erosion, and they build a factory like a virus. That's how a virus can colonize your body. Your body consists of 50 trillion cells. How is it possible that one molecule called the virus can colonize your entire body? That's how it's done. That's how it was done in the movie. And this is probably the most realistic encounter with extraterrestrial civilizations. 
2001 is not a mystical movie. It is perhaps the most authentic representation of contact with an advanced civilization. And it will happen probably on our moon. Maybe on our moon there is a von Neumann probe, as we call it, left over from a passing civilization. Another possibility is ramjet fusion engines. It's like an ice cream cone. It scoops up hydrogen in the forward direction, burns it, and creates propulsion. Now let's say a few things about robots and artificial intelligence. Will one day our robots become so powerful they will put us behind bars and they'll throw penis at us and make us dance, just like we make bears dance behind bars. Are robots our helpers or are they our evolutionary successors? Evolution is a series of successions. One species replace another. Are we creating homo superior or should we merge with our creations? First of all, Let's talk about robots. One problem with Moore's Law, which says that computer power doubles every 18 months, is that by 2020, Moore's Law will finally collapse. Computer power, silicon power, cannot go down, cannot increase forever. As George Harrison once said, quote, all things must pass. Even the age of silicon will pass. Silicon Valley could become a rust belt. In the meantime, of course, we know that chips are everywhere. We put them in toys. We put them in games. When you put a chip in a toy, it's creating a problem for the English language, a contradiction in terms called smart Barbie dolls. Another contradiction in terms is Microsoft works. That is also a contradiction in terms. Chips are so tiny we can put them anywhere. In fact, we even put them in our body. You can get an aspirin pill now, this big, with a chip in it and a TV camera. This exists already. I've seen, I've seen it. You swallow it. It takes photographs of your inside with a chip inside and a camera inside that aspirin pill. This gives a new meaning for the expression, Intel inside. <laughs> but are they really smart, these robots? Well... Let me give you, let you in on a dirty secret. The reason why Japan is spending so much money on robots, you'll see the most advanced robot in a second in the video. The reason why Japan is spending so much on robots is because these are the future robot nurses. Because Japan is aging faster than any population on the planet Earth. Europe is next. And because Japan allows almost no immigration, who is going to pick up the garbage? Who are going to take care of all these old people? In fact, the birth rate in Japan is 1.2 children per family, the lowest in the industrialized world. And there's a mathematical formula. You can calculate when the last Japanese will walk the face of the earth. 900 years from now, there may be no Japanese people anymore because they simply are not creating children. But let's have the next video. The next video, watch carefully because I interact with the most advanced robot in the world and it cannot carry on a simple conversation. Let's have the next video, the third video. The Japanese people conceive robots as friends, companions, 
and even confidants. Welcome, Dr. Paku. Glad to meet you. As well. I'll show you to the table. My pleasure. It's no surprise that the most advanced humanoid robot, Asimo, has been developed here in Japan. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule to visit us. Ah, no problem. While ASIMO can recognize obstacles and pre-registered faces, most of what it says and does is pre-programmed. Please make a seat. Okay, I will. Please excuse me. And yet, ASIMO has one very important skill. It can walk and move like a human. We take it for granted that we can walk. We don't even think about it. In fact, it's an extremely complex task. It took the engineers at Honda 20 years of research to achieve ASIMO's human-like movements. ASIMO is one of the most advanced robots in the world when it comes to walking, when it comes to running, when it comes to mobility. Things that were once considered impossible, ASIMO can do. So ASIMO is an engineering marvel. Realize that five, ten years ago, a robot that could walk with this sophistication was beyond reach. Because ASIMO's looks and moves are so strikingly similar to a human, I don't see in it just a machine. I came for a Thank you. I brought you orange juice. I know ASIMO is a machine. But I find myself relating to it as though it was a real person. We tend to anthropomorphize things closest to us. For example, recently, my wife and I bought a Roomba. You know, one of these robot vacuum cleaners that cleans your floor automatically. And I began to notice how my wife's attitude toward the machine began to change with time. All of a sudden, she began to call it an affectionate name. And she began to say, don't work the robot so hard. Let the poor thing rest. Give it a break. As if it was a real person. As if it was some kind of pet or even a baby. The more lifelike the machine, the more we will develop an emotional bond with it. And the more we will tend to interact with it. Yeah, what will happen when, increasingly, the machines interact with us? This is the world's largest robot museum in the Japanese city of Nagoya. Some of the robots on display here are especially designed to foster an emotional bond with humans. This is the Sony Ivo, in other words, Robo Pet. 
The Sony Aibo can register about six different emotions, like hunger, distress, pain. When you want to pet the dog, it registers pleasure. You pet it on its back, you tickle its ears, or you tickle its chin. And when it runs out of electricity, it shows that it's hungry. The children here clearly love toys like Aibo. Their reaction gives a... Okay, so then the question is, first of all, why don't we have robots? And I've often been fascinated by the question. So I went to MIT, and I asked the world's top people, why don't we have robots? And the answer shocked me. Two reasons. Two reasons why we don't have robots. First is pattern recognition. Robots can see. Robots can see much better than you. Ten times better than you. But they don't understand what they see. They see only lines, circles, and ellipses. You show them a bottle, and this is just a collection of ovals, circles. It would take them hours to recognize this as a bottle. It takes ro a robot six hours to walk across the room. Six hours to walk across the room. Can you imagine the Terminator movie with the Terminator robot taking six hours to walk across the room? Can you imagine the governor of California taking six hours to sign a bill? Second, common sense. Now, we know that water is wet. We know that when you die, you don't come back the next day. You know that mothers are older than their daughters. You know that strings can pull, strings cannot push. You know that sticks can push, but sticks cannot pull. Now, let me ask you a question. How did you know that? How did you know that strings can pull, but strings cannot push? How do you know that animals do not like pain? How do you know that mothers are older than their daughters? Well, that's common sense, right? That's what robots don't have. Asimo that you saw there, it took five hours to set up that scene. Five hours for the most advanced robot in the world. It's like talking to a tape recorder. Our most advanced robots cannot understand a fairy tale. I repeat, you tell them a fairy tale. Five-year-old kid can understand a fairy tale. Robots cannot. So how advanced are our most advanced robots? I was shocked when they told me this. Our most advanced robots, forget the movies, our most advanced robots have the collective intelligence of a cockroach, a stupid cockroach, a retarded, lobotomized, stupid cockroach. Even cockroaches don't take six hours to walk across the room. Well, one thing that we may have to do is program emotions. These are the bug bots that are on Mars right now. They have the intelligence of a stupid cockroach. Even cockroaches can scavenge, find mates, hide, run. Our Mars rover, all it could do is pick up a rock. And even then, it can barely recognize a rock. It's a stupid insect we have on Mars right now. But what about emotional robots? If you watch Star Trek, you know that Data is the tin man who wants to have a heart. What about that? Are emotions really impossible? Well, what is the purpose of having emotions anyway? I was quite shocked when I found this out. Emotions have a purpose. You see, if you have a stroke victim, and the stroke victim has the frontal cortex separated from the center of the brain, 
This means that reason is separated from emotion. And there are trauma victims with this very unfortunate problem. When they see something, they have no emotional value associated with it. These people have no emotions. These people are paralyzed making a decision. You ask them, when's the next time for a good appointment? It takes them hours to make value decisions. You go shopping with these people. They cannot shop. Thousands of things hitting them and they don't know what's important, what's not important, what's expensive, what's not expensive. In other words, the purpose of emotions in some sense is to give you a goal, to give you a ranking of what's important, what's not important, what is dangerous, what is not dangerous. These people have no such ranking. In other words, emotion is central to intelligence or else you are paralyzed. Paral you can't go shopping. You can't make value judgments because emotions do that for you. Emotions tell you what's important, what's not important. This is essential. That's not essential. We have to have emotional robots. Are robots dangerous? Well, of course they're dangerous. But right now, they have the intelligence of a cockroach. Maybe in 10 years, 10, 20 years, they have the intelligence of a rabbit. Even rabbits know how to run, hide, find mates, scavenge. Maybe in 50, who knows, 50, 70 years, they'll have the intelligence of a monkey. We'll have plenty of warning. And when they become as intelligent as a monkey, I think we should put a chip in their brain to shut them off if they get murderous. Because, hey, homo superior may be possible. Another possibility is to merge with our robot creations. Why not become immortal? Why not have the body of a Superman? Why not live forever in a body of steel, metal, silicon? In the future, if our descendants have a choice, either die or become immortal with superhuman powers, hey, what kind of decision would you make given that choice? Now let's talk about what I sometimes think about, time machines. Is it possible to bend time into knots? Some people say, well, if time travel is possible, where are the tourists from the future? Well, my attitude is this. If you're walking down a country road and you bump into an anthill, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets, I bring you beads, I give you nuclear energy, I give you power beyond ant imagination. Take me to your ant leader. Is that what you say to them? Or maybe you step on a few of them. Well, if they're so advanced that they can build a time machine, they can bend the river of time into a pretzel, maybe we're not that interesting to them. So let's talk about time travel. If you go backwards in time and meet your teenage mother before you're born, you're in deep trouble. Because if your teenage mother just falls in love with you and she rejects your father, how can you be born? Well, we do have a loophole in Einstein's equations. Einstein himself knew this in 1935. Einstein wrote the first paper on wormholes. Wormholes are a shortcut through space and time. And there are many physicists today who think that Yes, it may be possible to build a wormhole machine that will take you to the past. So what happens if you go backwards in time and kill your parents before you're born? How can you be born if you just killed your parents before you're born? Well, 
Perhaps the river of time forks into two rivers. And perhaps you kill somebody else's parent who looks just like your parents when they were young, genetically equivalent to your parents, but they're on a different timeline. So let's now have the last and fourth videotape where we will talk about how to build a time machine consistent with all the known laws of physics. Next video. <coughs> After years of being treated as science fiction, it seems that time travel could be science fact. The thing is, the laws of physics don't have any problems with time running backwards. So we physicists believe that it just might be possible to build a time machine. The only obstacle we face is one of engineering. That's because the theoretical blueprint for our time machine already exists. A machine that secret lies deep within our microscopic universe. subatomic level, the fabric of space and time becomes so unstable that it starts to behave like a foam, its surface alive with tiny bubbles momentarily popping in and out of existence. We call this quantum state the space-time foam. It's thought that contained within this foam are objects called wormholes tiny passageways between two points in space and time. The secret to building a time machine is to stabilize the space-time foam long enough to make one of these wormholes permanent. And the way we do that is by subjecting it to enormous amounts of energy. I'm standing 100 meters above what will be, when it's finished, the world's most powerful particle accelerator. This machine, scientists hope, will help to unlock some of the secrets of the mysterious world of subatomic particles, the building blocks of our universe. This tunnel is 27 kilometers in circumference and it houses the accelerator. Inside this chamber, two beams of subatomic particles will be traveling in opposite directions, boosted to near the speed of light. As the protons within the beams collide, they shatter into even smaller particles releasing bursts of energy roughly half a million times greater than those inside a nuclear explosion. But even the most powerful accelerator on this planet can't produce enough energy to stabilize the space-time foam. To do that, our particles would have to be moving even faster, and that would require an accelerator of truly enormous proportions. 
big. In fact, we would need to build it in space. So, believe it or not, that is consistent with all the known laws of physics. That doesn't mean we can build it. Stephen Hawking once said that time travel is not possible. He changed his mind about seven years ago. Now he says that, yes, time travel is possible, but not practical. You would have to build a starship with that kind of energy. Because you are talking about Alice's looking glass. This is a wormhole. In fact, when a black hole is spinning and it collapses, it collapses to a ring, not a dot, a ring. And you could show that the gravity at the center of the ring is not infinite. So in principle, you could walk through the ring, through a black hole, into a parallel universe. Now let's talk about who can do these technologies. When we look in outer space, we physicists don't see little green men. We see type 1, type 2, and type 3 civilizations in outer space. A type 1 civilization is a planetary civilization. They control the energy of an entire planet. They control the weather. They control volcanoes, earthquakes, about 100 years in the future. Type 2 is stellar. They control the energy of an entire star. They are perhaps a few thousand years ahead of us, and the Federation of Planets, Star Trek, is a typical Type 2 civilization. Then we have Type 3, a galactic civilization. These civilizations can eat Type 2 civilizations for breakfast. They control the energy of an entire galaxy, hundreds of thousands of years into the future. By the way, if we have any Trekkies in the audience, who can tell me the name of the most feared Type 
Three Galactic Civilization on Network Television. The Borg. Very good. Well, a Type 1 civilization harnesses the power of a planet. Like Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, they control the weather or modify the weather. Earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes. They're about a hundred years ahead of us. They've even colonized some of the nearby asteroids. Now, believe it or not, we are about a hundred years away from being Type 1. So this means that you see the birth pangs of a Type 1 civilization every time you open the newspaper. For example, what would the language of this emerging Type 1 civilization be? English. Not French. How will they communicate in a Type 1 civilization? Their telephone system is called the Internet. What is the Internet? The Internet is an embryonic Type 1 telephone system. What about the economy of Type 1? You have the European Union. These nations have been killing each other for thousands of years. The British hates the French. The French hate the Huns. The Huns hate the Gauls. They've been hating each other even before the Roman Empire. So how come they formed the European Union? To compete with us. And who is us? We are NAFTA. So you're witnessing the beginning of a Type 1 economy. What about the culture of Type 1? It's going to be rock and roll, youth culture, mass media. Oh, my God. That, you can already see it, a beginning of a Type 1 culture. But there's some people who do not want this historic transition to a Type 1 civilization. That's where we're headed. But there's some people who don't like it. They don't understand it, but they reflexively do not like a tolerant, multicultural, progressive, technological civilization. And who are these people? The terrorists. So let's talk about these now. What are we on this scale? We are type zero. We get our energy from dead plants, oil and coal, but we can dream. At 3% increase per year, we will be type one in about 100 years. A few thousand years, we'll be type two. A type two civilization, for example, can build a sphere around its sun, called a Dyson sphere, to capture all its energy. A type two civilization is very interesting because it is immortal. Nothing known to science can destroy a type two civilization. Meteors can be deflected. Ice ages can be diverted. Even if their mother star goes supernova, they can move their mother planet. They are immortal, just like the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. Then we have type three. They harness the power of a galaxy, like the Empire or the Borg in Star Trek. They probe the universe with these robots, von Neumann probes. They don't send Captain Kirk on a mission with the Enterprise. That's a waste of time. They send robots, self-replicating robots, like a virus. How does a virus take over your body in two weeks? They are self-replicating, creating billions of copies of themselves. And a Type three civilization may begin to think about building a time machine. They can build atom smashers of galactic size to open gateways in the space-time foam. Laser beams that may open gateways and perhaps create a baby universe. I took this picture from the scientific literature. We physicists believe that this may have been the way in which our universe was created. Perhaps our universe split off, budded 
from a parent universe. A type 3 civilization will have the energy to open a gateway between universes. Time travel, wormhole travel, you cannot rule them out. And I was once giving this talk in London at the planetarium, and a little boy comes up to me. He was about 10 years of age, and he yanked on my pants, and he said, Professor, you're wrong. There's type four. And I looked down on the kid, and I said to him, Shut up, kid. What do you know? Why don't you go play in traffic? There's a nice intersection over there. And he kept tugging on my pants. And he said, Professor, you're wrong. There's type four. Well, for you Trekkie fans, what is the name of the only type four civilization on network television? It is the Q. Now, if you did not understand what just transpired in the last few minutes, get with the program. It's on Channel 11. <laughs> and you can learn all about Type 3 and Type 4 civilizations, the Borg and the Q. The Q are gods, because if you are beyond galactic, you would have the power of a god. Now, my friends professionally, by the way, look for signals from aliens from outer space. They're very serious about this. I mentioned this in my book. And they tell me that our Earth, our Earth also radiates. We've been radiating radio and television. There is a sphere surrounding the Earth, expanding at the speed of light, containing all our finest cultural archives, the noblest achievements of the human creative spirit, like I Love Lucy, Leave it to Beaver, and now joined by the immortal classics Beavis and Butthead and Dumb and Dumber Part 2. And any star within 50 light years of the Earth will be inside this sphere. They will pick up our cultural emissions and they'll be convinced there is no intelligent life on the Earth. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org. 